but the Lord of the Black Land come forth. Justice shall be done upon him, for wrongfully he has made war upon Gondor and wrested its lands. Therefore the king of Gondor demands that he should atone for his evils and depart then forever. You're listening to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, the show where we dive into all things Tolkien in anticipation of Amazon's big budget adaptation of the beloved Legendarium. Please make welcome your host, Gandalf the Grey, also known as Michael Rowland. And I'm joined by Jen Gallagher, aka Shilob, Spawn of Ungoliant. This week on Watch Party, we're going to be continuing our conversation from last week and talk about everything that we're looking forward to seeing in the new series. Specifically, we're going to be diving into our top two things that we want to see from the series, and also our number one character we are hoping to see. But first, before diving in, we have a quick fact check. Yes, last week I talked about Numenor, the Atlantis-like civilization that we're probably going to be seeing in the Second Age of Middle-earth on this new series. And I mentioned that there were there was only one queen of Numenor. So this is not accurate. I went back and checked my facts and there were actually four queens of Numenor. So from TolkienGateway.net, I'm going to read a quote. In the early days of Numenor, succession followed the principle of agnatic primogeniture. That is, rule passed to the oldest male offspring of the king. The queen of Numenor was the queen consort of the king. Tar Aldarion, who was the sixth ruler of Numenor, had only one child, a daughter, and Calame. To prevent the throne from passing to his nephew, Sorrento, he changed the law of succession in Numenor to allow full cognatic primogeniture, under which rule would pass to the oldest child of the ruler, whether male or female. So out of Numenor's 25 rulers, only three were female, and they were Tar and Calame, Tar Telperion, and Tar Venemelde. Tarmiriel should have been the fourth ruling queen, but the throne was usurped from her by her cousin, Arpharazone. What a jerk. What a jerk, indeed. So I have one more brief fact check, and that is that I found nothing to indicate that Russell Crowe will be involved in this upcoming series, sadly. But he did turn down the role of Aragorn in the original Lord of the Rings. Um, He had a conversation with Jackson himself, and during which he gleaned that Jackson possibly had someone else in mind, wasn't too enthused about having him. Um, And he was right. We got Viggo Mortensen instead as Aragorn. Um, And we're all super happy about that because he was so fantastic as Aragorn. But I'm pretty disappointed he won't be part of this series. I love me some Russell Crowe. I mean, I go back and watch Gladiator every now and then. And I wouldn't mind seeing Gladiator in in the Lord of the Rings universe. I mean, who knows? Maybe a spinoff. I will talk about this a little bit later, but I'm hoping that we're going to see an abundance of spinoffs. The world is big enough. Uh, So, I mean, there's room enough for Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio. Bring Elijah Wood back. Elijah Wood said that he would be willing to come back. He said, you know what? If they ask me to make a cameo, I'll make a cameo, which would I would love. I would love if Elijah Wood just was in one of the background scenes, just (laughs) hanging out. I can't imagine the context in which it would make sense for him to to no. be featured as Frodo. But if it, if it was maybe just like a little Easter egg for fans, he's in the background, like or he's an orc getting slaughtered. I'd be down for that. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. 
All right, one other fact check is a pronunciation fact check. Last week, we talked about the realm of Eregion, that's Celebrimbor's realm in Middle-earth, and uh, I pronounced it two ways, uh, Eregion and Eregion. The correct pronunciation is Eregion. Um, I just defaulted to my childhood pronunciation of Eregion. You know, when I read it as a kid, I didn't really flip to the appendices to read the uh, dissertation on pronunciation that uh, that Tolkien provided for us. So um, when I saw E-R-E-G-I-O-N, I just pronounced it like any English reader would, uh, Eregion. But it is, of course, Eregion. Um, also, we talked about Celebrimbor and Cirdan. And at some point, we questioned, well, is it Celebrimbor or is it Celebrimbor? The C's in um, Sylvan languages, uh, or rather Elven languages, are generally hard C's. So Celebrimbor is a hard C. Cirdan is a hard C. And uh, in most cases, it's going to be hard C. Um, so that's our pronunciation fact check for the week. Thank you, Michael. Or should I say Gandalf? Now we're going to do a quick update on the series and then we're going to dive into the meat and potatoes. So update on the new series. We This was from a few months back. Um, there was an article that read a stunt person was injured. It was in the New Zealand Herald. Uh, Lissa Cadwell, an experienced Brisbane-based stunt woman, actor, and dancer who recently doubled for Nicole Kidman in Aquaman, is understood to have been injured during rehearsals at the sprawling Kimu Film Studio. So sources confirmed she fell into water in large tanks as planned, but her head struck a bolt in the process. Ouch. One witness said the resulting injuries were traumatic. So she is okay. She's making a, a, a full recovery. But uh, I thought this this piece of info, we have such little info that something like this, this little nugget, you're like, huh, I wonder I wonder what she was doing. Was, was this a scene of Numenor, the flooding of Numenor and, you know, somebody drowning in that scene? Um, we can, we can speculate all kinds of things. Who knows what it was? Yeah, it's uh, it's hard. It's hard to know. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of water in middle earth. Uh, you know, Numenor is an Island. There's uh, seafaring going on all the time. So it could be the fall of Numenor. It could just be any sea related scene. Um, but one thing that was interesting to me about this update is that you said that she was previously a stunt woman for Nicole Kidman. Now, Nicole Kidman has a certain look, a certain build, that I think you could say might match um, the actress we have for Galadriel. So maybe this stunt woman was doubling um, for the Galadriel actress. And so we have Galadriel getting into the water for some reason. That would probably not, I mean, that would almost certainly not have anything to do with Numenor. That would be a Middle Earth related scene. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out what scene would involve Galadriel, you know, diving off the deep end. But um, I've been sort of trying to use my imagination to figure that one out. Well, I also had a theory. Perhaps it was Elros and Elrond. Their mother, as I understand it, committed suicide, did not die, but jumped into the water to preserve um, mm. a beloved gem, one of the Silmarils, yeah. I believe. So yeah. perhaps perhaps this is what we're seeing. We don't know. It's fun to speculate. Maybe a flashback because be. that that is... Uh a pre-Second Age event that's uh, immediately before the Second Age. Um, and she didn't... It, it's not inaccurate to say it, that she was attempting suicide. Uh, she didn't die, though, because um, the, Valor, the Valar bore her up out of the sea. And uh, <laughs> in the image of... They said that she was like in the image of a bird or something, um, but then she rejoined Arendil and they sailed together 
to Valinor to uh, request the Valar's aid against Morgoth. So it's actually um, a really beautiful story. I hope it it's included somewhere. Yeah, if they're allowed to. Again, this all goes back to uh, what rights they acquired, which is the great mystery. Um, so really, the most interesting part of Lord of the Rings uh, are the intellectual property rights questions. Law nerds? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Shelob, for that <laughs> that wonderful update. It is just like a she- <laughs> it is just like a Shelob to find uh, an injury so fascinating. I, for one, thought it was inappropriate <laughs> for a family podcast to revel in someone else's pain, but uh, that's just like a Shelob. Go smoke a pipe, Gandalf. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, you should be honored that I gave you Shelob. I gave you back to back. Two of the most powerful, uh, independent, fiercely independent female characters in the whole Legendarium. <laughs> First, I gave you Luthien, and now Shelob. I mean, and Shelob is she's interesting. Uh, she's ancient, very ancient, and her mother was like one of the original mm-hmm. bad creatures of Middle Earth, and yeah. they're they're a little bit mysterious. So hey, it's not you know, there's positives yeah. associated with them as well. Yeah, she, <laughs> it, that's a bit of a stretch. That's a yeah, very that's Shelob a bit thing of a to stretch. say. <laughs> But you know, she was on, she's been living on her own, doing her own thing. She's misunderstood. She's self-sufficient. I'll give her yeah, that. Very self-sufficient. She doesn't take no crap. I mean, we'll just say that. She doesn't take no guff from nobody. Okay. That's right. And uh, but um, so, you know, Shelob, the great feminist character in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna get so in trouble for that. <laughs> hey, you know what? I can I can experience Lord of the Rings any way I want to. Okay. <laughs> any way I want to. <laughs> On that note, folks, we're going to talk about the characters that we really want to see in this series. So, Michael, do you want to kick us off and talk about which two characters you're looking most forward to seeing? Yes. And, uh, you know, we agreed to pick our number one character, but in uh, true watch party fashion, we couldn't help ourselves. And I think we both got a couple different characters. Um, so my first character is the fourth queen of Numenor, Tar Muriel. You mentioned her briefly in our fact check, and I think that she is a character I am dying to see in this series. We are almost certainly going to see her represented. Um, and what I'm really interested, why she really interests me is she's not a main character. She's not talked about at length in the Silmarillion, uh, in the Akalabeth, in the Unfinished Tales, really anywhere. She's barely referenced but she is right at the center of things. So just to give you a little bit of brief history to remind you who Tarmariel is, she is, um, she becomes the queen. She inherits a scepter at a time when Numenor is already falling into darkness. Uh, for generations, it is, uh, the Numenorians are grumbling about the fact that they are mortal and they're not an open rebellion, but they're starting to get there. They're really unhappy with the elves and with the Valar for uh, their mortal lot in life. And so Numenor is starting to get kind of dark. Now her father, her father, Tar Palantir, uh, tries to steer Numenor back onto the right track, tries to steer them towards the light. He is, you know, remains faithful to the elves and to the Valar, but it's a little bit too late. And by the time Tar Palantir dies, he passes the scepter to Tar Muriel. She becomes the queen. But Tar Palantir's nephew, who is Tarmiriel's cousin, Arpharazon, he is very much on the dark side of things. He is not at all faithful. 
and he is uh, well loved, well liked, and he's very powerful. And he actually seizes the scepter by force, uh, forcefully weds Tarmariel, forces her to become his wife. Um, and as the king, as her husband, as the king, he then kind of assumes control and becomes the ruling king. And she, in terms of what we see in the Akalabeth, fades into the into the background. But we know that she is the wife of Erfarazon, who's the Numenorean king, who ultimately is corrupted by Sauron and leads an expedition to try and overthrow the Valar. He tries to assail Valinor and seize immortality um, by conquering Valinor, which of course is a, an experiment doomed to fail, as Sauron knew, but that's that's what he does. And of course, it leads to the downfall of Numenor. But Tarmiriel is right at the center of all that. She's his wife. We know that she is, um, or at least was, more on the one of the faithful. She was the daughter of Tar Palantir. Um, there's indications in the Calabeth that she was one of the faithful. So I, I want to read a couple passages that sort of tell us who Tarmariel is. And these are really the only passages that, that talk about her. Um, but they paint a really interesting picture. Quote, and it came to pass that Tar Palantir grew weary of grief. That's her father. That Tar Palantir grew weary of grief and died. He had no son, but a daughter only, whom he named Muriel in the elven tongue. And to her now by right and the laws of the Numenorians came the scepter. But Pharazon took her to wife against her will, doing evil in this and evil also in that the laws of Numenor did not permit the marriage, even in the royal house, of those more nearly akin than cousins in the second degree. And when they were wedded, he seized the scepter into his own hand, taking the title of Erpharazon, or Tarkalion in the elven tongue, and the name of his queen he changed to our Zimraphel. So that's the introduction of Tarmiriel. And if we fast forward to the moment that the Valar give up their governance of the world to Ira Lubatar and ask for his aid um, against Erpharazon, who is now trying to assail Valinor. And uh, this is the moment when Iluvatar causes uh, Numenor to sink into the ocean. Quote, In an hour unlooked for by men, this doom befell, on the nine and thirtieth day since the passing of the fleets. Then suddenly fire burst from the Menaltarma, and there came a mighty wind and a tumult of the earth, and the sky reeled and the hills slid, and Numenor went down into the sea, with all its children and its wives and its maidens and its ladies proud and all its gardens and its halls and its towers, its tombs and its riches and its jewels and its webs and its things painted and carven and its laughter and its mirth and its music, its wisdom and its lore, they vanished forever. And last of all, the mounting wave, green and cold and plumed with foam, climbing over the land, took to its bosom Tar Muriel the Queen, Fairer than silver or ivory or pearls. Too late she strove to ascend the steep ways of the Minaltarma to the holy place, for the waters overtook her, and her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. Fades wow. Let's all cry. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she could be a really powerful figure. Like, I would love to see her as the power behind the throne and like leading the rebellion behind her husband's back. And, you know, we get to. You get to kind of see a. I, I hope that we see more feminine uh, female heroes and heroines um, in this series. And I, I think you're so right in that she could make a very compelling um, heroine. Yeah, I mean, and again, we don't know much about her. 
and what she did during the time that Farazone was king. So this is a, a, a storyline that the showrunners and, and writers are going to have to come up with um, almost from whole cloth. And so they have some options and it's, it'll be interesting to see which direction that they go in. But there is some political intrigue or the opportunity to create a storyline that is based on political intrigue because we know we have um, a limited uh, sort of a, a, a subset of the population that's still faithful. And we don't know exactly in what ways they rebel or try and turn Farazon away um, from his path. We, we don't know what efforts they, they made, not specifically, but we can imagine that there was some sort of, there were some machinations behind the scene scenes and Tar Mariel was potentially part of it. Or, you know, it's certainly possible that the showrunners could put her in the middle of it. You know, she is the queen. She is close to Farazon. I mean, they could go as far as maybe there's a plot to kill Farazon to, to, save Numenor. And maybe she's integral in that plot. Maybe it fails. I mean, these are all things I'm coming up with, but they have all kinds of options and she could be right at the center of that because of her proximity to Farazon. Right. Or maybe she goes toe to toe with Sauron himself, you know, and sure. she, that could be really interesting to see those who Sauron is unable to, he's, he's going by the name of Anatar in this series. We'll know him as Anatar, so we might as well get used to calling him that right off the bat. Right. But it would be Lord really Lord of Gifts. Lord of Gifts. Yes, that's his name. Um and it would be really interesting to see, you know, a female character because we got that in Lord of the Rings as well. We got, mm-hmm. you know, I'm picturing um Eowyn standing up to the Nazgûl and maybe we'll get another taste of that here. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And one interesting way it could go, and I just thought of this before we recorded, but so, you know, the fact that her death is so tragic and and in many ways, I think that because of the tragic nature, almost Shakespearean nature of her death, you know, where she is climbing the the Mount uh, Metal Tarma, which is sort of the holy place, which even in the end is unspoiled. Even Sauron didn't spoil that. She's climbing it to try and, I don't know, save herself or say a prayer but it's just too late and she still is drowned, which I'm thinking about Hamlet. I mean, ding, ding, ding Hamlet. Yeah. Like the, the wife who, you know, is slowly, maybe she's sent mad by the end. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. She could, she could be mad or, I mean, consider the fact that, uh, Iluvatar and the Valar, but really Iluvatar destroys all of Numenor. Every single person in Numenor dies, you know, and some of the faithful, who have boarded the ships, they are saved. But are we to are we to understand that every single person on Numenor was evil and corrupted? Every single person that Iluvatar killed, other than we those know that saved? they weren't. Yeah, we know that they weren't. Yeah, at least we know that Tarmariel. There's some indication that she was. You know, the way she's described in that passage I just read. You know, she's the queen. She's fairer than than all the jewels. Um, but was perhaps there's a reason why she wasn't saved? Maybe she, um, in a critical moment when she could have changed things she lacked courage or something like that, you know, or she um, was corrupted in some small way. I mean, it could be, there could be a tragedy of that type too, where she's not a perfectly good character and due to some flaw, she um, is not allowed to go with Elendil and the escaping faithful. This series already, man, it has the potential to break your heart. (laughs) It could be a heartbreaker folks. All right, well, give me yours. Um, give me your number one. I'm going to give you my takes, what I hope to see. So I'd say first and foremost, I'm really hoping to see Galadriel's full story arc come into play. 
Um, I, we know we're going to see Galadriel. We know she's going to be prominent in this series. I would love to see her childhood in Amon and her coming to Middle-earth and residing in Doriath, even though I, I doubt they have um, the rights mm-hmm. to this stuff. But um, I, I would love to see all this and see her with her mentor. She befriended um, a very a wonderful character named Melian, who is a, a powerful female character and becomes her mentor and her teacher and teaches her to make Lembus and teaches her um, magic and all these different things. Um, and I would love to see her fall in love with Celeborn, her husband Celeborn. She meets him in Doriath when she's there. Um, Celeborn and of the trees. And I think Celeborn we will see that because that is a second age event, right? Or well, it is. No, they, they meet in the first age because they meet in Doriath. Right. That's what we meet in Doriath. Yeah. So we could definitely see them meet. Um, I'm hoping, hoping maybe. Yeah. I'm hoping there's a fun little love triangle between um, Celeborn Galadriel and a character named Kellen Brimbor, who Mm -hmm. is um, he's a master crafts craftsman and Smith. He's responsible for forging the great rings of power. So we will undoubtedly see him. He will make an appearance. Um, I bet he's a central character. Yeah, I'm betting he is a central character. He's super important in the series. He actually gives um, Nenya, which is one of the rings of power, to Galadriel um, to hide from Sauron after she convinces him to do so. She convinces him that he needs to hide the three elven rings of power so that Sauron can't get to them. Um, And he is said to have loved Galadriel, who chose Celeborn instead. So... I'd, I'd love to see his story play out in that kind of love triangle play out. We we only get a very brief, um, brief little section of it in the book, which I'll read. And uh, that is, this is, that is its fate, I deem. But you know that I love you, though you turn to Celeborn of the Trees. And for that love, I will do what I can. If haply my, by my art, your grief can be lessened. So... Yeah, I, I think he's a really interesting character and he defies Sauron, even though at first he's sort of duped by Sauron. Uh, he's also really close friends with the dwarves because he's such a, a lover of uh, smith crafting. And, and Regeon's um, right next to the Mines of Moria. So he's he's going down there, sucking down some dwarven brews, you know, when he gets off work, kicking a few back with, with the Durin's folk. Kicking some, some of the old medicine back with... Uh, particularly with an elf a dwarf named Navi. So he becomes close friends with this dwarf named Navi. And so we could get another Legolas Gimli-like friendship. And actually those two created the doors of Durin that we see in Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, when that elven, that door that has uh, a riddle on it that we see in the, at the entrance to the Mines of Moria, they actually... Except not really it. a riddle. It ended up being too simple for, for Gandalf. Speak very friend simple. and enter. <laughs> oh, it's very simple. If you're a friend, you speak the password and enter. Why don't <laughs> you just say friend, so idiot? <laughs> Actually, that'd be a really fun, uh, really a fun scene showing them deciding what to inscribe on the door and and <laughs> fighting hey, over it. And we could, you know, we could have a nice little bromance. Let's just let's just put friend on the door. You know, hey, buddy. It's too simple. It's far too simple. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm excited about Kellen Brimmore, and he he does have a very tragic end in the book, but um, very important character, and uh, loves Galadriel. Which who 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 can blame him? I mean, she's yeah, beautiful, over, she's powerful, over kind of the whole package there. <laughs> um, other characters I'd love to see. I have I have two other characters. I'd love to see Elrond and Elros. I I think. 
we will definitely see Elrond, but I'd love to see his twin brother as well um, make an appearance. Super important, obviously, to the whole story. Um, but I kind of, I kind of pre- hope, I kind of hope they do it in a way that's confusing. I, I know that sounds like a weird thing to say <laughs> because they're twins, right? I mean, they're twins. It doesn't specify whether they're identical twins, but they're they are twins. I think. Am I right about that? They are twins. Right. So the same actor could play Elros, and so we could see scenes of the same actor and early on before you're like, you really know what's Numenor and what's whatever, or you could show scenes where it's Elros doing things and you don't know if it's Elrond or Elros. I don't know. I think that could be like kind of fun to play with that a little bit. You could screw (laughs) around with time. So you could keep showing scenes of Elros, but not say that it's Elros. That might get a little too confusing, but I think it'd be kind of fun. (laughs) But the real fans will know. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I want, I want a, a subplot that only I will understand. Only we can decipher. Um, yeah, I mean, those two are super interesting. One to- chose mortality to remain among men, Elros, and Elrond chose to to remain an elf. So their paths are really, really different. And Elros is a ruler of Numenor for a time. So that may be um, that we don't really see him at all, but I do think it would be um, an interesting plot line because we're already familiar with Elrond and people can can latch onto it. And the show the showrunners have said, you know, there will be recognizable characters, mm-hmm. plural, in this. So all we know for sure is Galadriel, but they've got to be talking about who else could they be talking about other than Elrond? I mean, yeah, I agree. I think I think Galadriel and Elrond. Elrond's almost confirmed. I think. I mean, I forget the name of the actor that is supposedly going to is rumored to play him, but. Um, I think we're almost certainly going to see Elrond and Gilgalad technically was shown in like one scene in Lord of the Rings. So I don't know that, that he was in two scenes, I think. Uh, oh, no, you're right, I'm thinking you're right. of Kyrdan, the shipwright. Kyrdan, the shipwright was in two scenes very briefly. One at the very beginning uh-huh. of three rings for the Elven King season that briefly. And then he's at the very end at the gray Havens because he's, he just hangs out of the gray Havens. Anyway. Um, I will get to who I'm, what I'm most looking forward to seeing and hoping to see. Well, and let me that, give you. I, I got one more for you. I, I, I got, got one, one more. more? All right. One more character. I'm just bring it on. I'm really excited to see. And I, I tried to pick characters that we we didn't know we're going to see. You know, some. And there's no guarantee we're going to see these folks, but I am really hoping that we will see Treebeard. 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 Yes, Treebeard. Oh. Uh, Treebeard is one of my favorite characters from the Lord of the Rings books. Super old. I mean, other than Tom Bombadil, I think the oldest, uh, probably the oldest living thing uh, on Earth, other than the Maiar also. Maiar, you know, predate the world. But um, Treebeard was around before the elves, before Morgoth came to Middle Earth. I mean, he was there at the beginning. And um, let me just, you know, now bear with me. Uh, let me tell you why Treebeard's so cool, how old he is. I mean, you know, where he came from and what he was doing in the second age and why I think it would be cool to see him. So very briefly, Treebeard is among the Ents, sheep, uh, the tree herders. So early in the creation of the world, um, when it was known that Iluvatar was going to create men and elves, um, Eul, uh, a Valar of Smithcraft, he said, I want to make somebody too. I want I want my own people. So he makes the dwarves. Um, and, you know, Aeol's not as good as Iluvatar, so he makes them kind of lumpy and stumpy. And, you know, they're not. that's why they're not as beautiful as elves. But he makes these little action figure people out of uh, clay. But they, they don't have any life. You know, they, they're just um, bodies. 
And Iluvatar says, hey, man, you weren't supposed to do that. Eil says, but I wanted to. And Iluvatar says, okay. And so then he breathes the secret fire into the dwarves, but he says they have to stay asleep until, um, you know, the the elves come because the elves have to be first. So, okay. So this just goes to show Iluvatar is super forgiving when his Valar get out of line. And he's also, you know, uh, very gracious and willing to give them things that they want when it's in line with his greater plan. So he breathes life into the dwarves. Now, Yavanna, who is the Valar, uh, more aligned with plants and nature, she sees this and she says, well, hey, I I got something I want too. Um, I'm kind of worried that all these elves and all these men and now dwarves um, are going to pick up their axes and just chop down trees and take all the plants and only see in nature what it can do for them. Uh, so I want something. I would Very like somebody. Tolkien philosophy, by the way. Yes, it, it so is. I mean, right from the beginning, Tolkien is embedding this this deep notion that that nature is something beautiful, not to be destroyed, not to be used for what it can give you, but to be appreciated and preserved. Um, and that's Amen. a theme that we 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 see throughout. Uh, and this Yavanna character pleads to Iluvatar, please give me somebody to protect my trees and and the plant life. So. Aluvatar creates the Ents, which are basically a, a race of uh, tree-like people. Um, they're, it's unclear how tree-ish they are, whether they're like walking trees or they're just big people that are kind of tree-ish. But their whole purpose is to tend to the trees. And they're around before even the elves get there. They're like the, some of the first living things on the earth. Um, so, And they're immortal and they've seen it all. Now, that gets us to Treebeard. Now, let me just read a little bit of a passage from The Two Towers when he's hanging out with Merry and Pippin. Merry and Pippin stumble into Fanghorn, this really scary forest, but not so scary because it's got a big, lovable Treebeard in it. And Treebeard talks about the Ents' beginnings. And he says, quote, Elves began it, of course, waking trees up and teaching them to speak and learning their tree talk. Oh, wait, wait. I got to do it in the right voice. Excuse me. <clears throat> <laughs> Elves began it, of course, waking trees up and teaching them to speak and learning their tree talk. They always wished to talk to everything the old elves did. But then the great darkness came and they passed away over the sea or fled into far valleys and hid themselves and made songs about days that would never come again. Never again. I, I, there was all one wood once upon a time, from here to the mountains of Loon, and this was just the East End. <laughs> that was a, like, bravo. That I, was a great tree beard. I've been gargling my, my lemon and honey water all week. <laughs> trying. <to prepare. laughs> Unique New York has been warming up to this. But <laughs> uh, yellow leather, red leather. Um, but I wanted to point out one cool thing there. So, I mean, it talks about that the elves were the ones who woke up, not their, uh, the elves didn't wake up the trees and create the ants. But what he means there is that it was the elves who gave them, uh, a passion for speech and talk, taught them to speak and ants don't treat, speak elvish. The ants developed their own language, but it was the elves that, that taught them to speak as the, and they said the elves love to talk to everything, which is something else that I love about the Lord of the Rings. Everything talks. I mean, only a, only a linguist would create a world where basically everything, you know, including the trees and even the rocks, because we have, you know, mountain giants, we have stone giants, everything talks. 
Um, but he also says that he talks about, you know, the great darkness came and the elves passed away over the sea. And the great darkness refers to the first time Morgoth came into middle earth. I mean, so he's, he's seen it all and somehow he's survived it all and the world has changed multiple times and he has survived. So this is a guy who's, this is a character that even in the second age is super ancient with, you know, in the second age, he's going to be basically the oldest living thing in the world. So it'd be cool to have him just for that reason. All right. So I think it'd be cool to see him, not just because he's old, but because there is some really interesting stuff that's going on in the second age. So if you watched Lord of the Rings and read the books, you would remember that he talked about the Entwives and at the time of the Lord of the Rings, he lost the Entwives, you know, Um, they got separated they took a, a left at the gap and uh, the Ents went to Radio Shack and then they, you know, said they were going to meet up in the food court and they couldn't find each other. This was before Google Maps, long before. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't have their GPS turned on, so they they never were able to reconnect. Um, but actually, you know, the, the Ents and the Entwives get separated like sometime in the first age, like really early on. I mean, that tells us how long the first age was thousands and thousands of years. So they were together for tens of thousands of years. Sometime in the first age, the entwives go off because entwives are more about cultivating crops and plants. Whereas ants just like to wander the forests and tend to the trees, but not the women doing all the work. Typical. Hey, you know what? The ants are letting the trees have their freedom. Okay. (laughs) Grow the way you want tree. I'm just, I'm here to empower you tree. I'm not going to make you do things. Not like them entwives. (laughs) no that'd be very cool to see cement wives i mean it's a huge it's a huge Mm -hmm. mystery they're they're shrouded in mystery and actually the song of the ant wives is like a beautiful passage we should read that sometime from the books um but that would be very cool to see some backstory and that's another familiar character that i didn't even think about that um Mm -hmm. audiences love i hope they bring back boromir to voice him oh you mean uh, uh gimli yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Gimli. Yes. So, you know, we know the Antwives and the Ants are already separated probably in the Second Age. But in the Second Age um, is when the Ants say, I think, you know, I'm getting a little lonely. Uh, I've, you know, been without a, my lady's touch for a while. Let's go find our Antwives and, you know, I don't know, booty call. So this is the Ants version of booty call in the Second Age, but they're not able to find them. So let me read a little passage <laughs> from from the Two Towers. Um, so, uh, Treebeard says, uh, then when the darkness came in the North, the ant wives crossed the great river and made new gardens and tilled new fields. And we saw them more seldom after the darkness was overthrown, the land of the ant wives blossomed richly and their fields were full of corn. Many men learned the crafts of the ant wives and honored them greatly, but we were only a legend to them, a secret in the heart of the forest. Yet here we still are all while the gardens, uh, while all the gardens of the ant wives are wasted. Men call them the Brownlands now. I remember it was long ago, in the time of the war between Sauron and the men of the sea, desire came over me to see Fimbrithil again. Now I'm going to jump ahead. And he says, we crossed over Anduin and came to their land, but we found it a desert. It was all burned and uprooted, for war had passed over it, but the Antwives were not there. So we know that that Treebeard sought out his Antwife, Fimbrithil, and it sounds like him and the other Ents went looking for them. Um after or during the time that Sauron uh, and the Numenorians were at war in the Second Age. So at the, it's at this time during the Second Age when there's war that they're seeking out the Antwives. So we could see that depicted 
And that could actually play directly into the Numenorean plot because later in this same chapter, Treebeard says, and because it's a short passage, I'm going to go back to my Treebeard voice here. <clears throat> Indeed, I have not seen them roused like this for many an age. We ants do not like being roused, and we never are roused unless it is clear to us that our trees and our lives are in great danger. That has not happened in this forest since the wars of Sauron and the men of the sea. So he, he makes clear that in the Second Age, when Sauron and the Numenorians are fighting, the Ents get roused, and they get, which to me means they get into the battle. So, I mean, there's obviously, Sauron is we doing some- We know what happens when those Ents get involved. They kick some butt. Yeah, I mean, they go all Hulk on those orcs. So, I mean, Sauron gets his orcs doing some orc work, probably on the edge of the forest, and the the Ents get involved in the war and, and to some degree. So, I, I think there's a good chance we could see the Ents depicted in some way or another. Now, they're not, you know- uh, you know, they don't get involved in wars unless the wars come to them. Um, so they're not going to be major players, but we could see them involved. And I would just love that to hear Treebeard's slow Bora room at some point. I, yeah, I would love that as well. They're just fascinating creatures. And I think really embody a lot of what Tolkien, a lot of the Tolkien spirit. I mean, he was really passionate actually about trees in particular and nature. And so I think I I'm really hoping that we see that tree beard makes an appearance as well. Um, mm-hmm. that, and that's a really, I can't believe you made that connection. That's really interesting. I, that he was someone I did not think about. Um, but we know he has the, they have the rights to Lord of the Rings. So right. Right. I mean, we, yeah, we know that, that they can depict the ants if they want to. Yeah. yeah entirely so possible. I, th- I think we could see it. Well, let's, We've talked about the characters we want to see. I, I want to know, Jen, from a very high level. I mean, we could we could see characters. We could see specific plot lines. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could want and desire for this show. But just give me, you know, 80,000 foot view. What are you really hoping that the show, show does? Um, what are you hoping is preserved or what do you want to see? Well, I had to think a lot about this question and I my top two was difficult – in fact, I actually have three things, but <laughs> I'd Typical say Shilobe. primarily, I'd really love to see just the the la- the language preserved. That's one of the things that I love the most about the series. I'm hoping they don't modernize it too much and the script full of slang or too much cheek or too many winks at the audience, which drives me absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that that they that they preserve the the language and um it's supposed to be poetic and old sounding and draw you transport you to a different time in a different place and i just think it's really beautiful so i'm hoping that they can they can kind of capture um capture that in the script writing so and that's going to be I, a tall order because i mean the reason that the Lord of the Rings and the whole legendarium is so great, it's because of Tolkien's Tolkien's writing style, his style of writing dialogue. And you can't just replicate that easily. I mean, you got to get someone really talented in there who can do a good Tolkien impression to create some real dialogue that, that sounds like what we saw in the Lord of the Rings. I'm hoping so. I think if they get sloppy with it and rely too heavily on a lot of action-packed drama, 
uh, it's definitely not going to be something that I'm going to enjoy watching. So I place a really high price on uh, the language. So that's my number one. Number two, I'm hoping for great um, characters that we can really latch on to, character arcs and development. Um, and even though it's a giant cast, we know at this point it's a really large cast, I think it is still entirely possible to have a lot of characters and still create very compelling um, story arcs. And we saw this really recently in Game of Thrones, um, mm-hmm. where there was just so many different plots happening at once. And a lot of people complained initially, this is hard to follow. But as we know, that that series was incredibly successful. Um, so I think it is possible to construct uh, narratives around these characters and draw you in and 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 really have us rooting for them by the end. So uh, yeah, I'm hoping we get some, some strong characters, strong female characters, um, and lastly, I would really love a kick-ass soundtrack. Um, I think it's going to be really hard to follow Howard Shore's soundtrack, which won so many awards. I mean, three Oscars, two Golden Globes, and three Grammys. And it is, it's just, it's so iconic. It's one of the best of all time. I, I love that soundtrack. All these different motifs going on, depending on where you are. Uh, the motif that he has going for the Shire is just so beautiful. I play it all the it's time. It's got to be my favorite, uh, honestly. It's my favorite. It's just so delightful. And and so I, I think music is so important um, in this wider legendarium. It's it's how even going back as far back to the creation of this world um, in the Silmarillion, the world was right. sung into existence. Right. And so it's really foundational. And Tolkien himself was a huge lover of music, even though he himself wasn't a musician. His wife is a musician. His wife is a musician, right. And um, I'm yeah, so I'm I'm hoping they do not skimp on the music, and I don't know who is the composer. I don't think they've released that. So I, I it's Kanye. Love- they got they got Kanye. Kanye was- <laughs> we're, we're, we're solid. He probably Kanye probably thinks Kanye could write it. He's like, no problem. I'm sure Kanye thinks Kanye could write it. <laughs> but that so I was joking, obviously, but um. That does actually lead me to an interesting question, which is what would you how would you react if they chose to do sort of a, a more modern soundtrack where they they the melodies weren't like old English or old folk type of uh, you See, know, that orchestral would be tough style. For me. That would be tough for me. And I've already run into this. It's the reason that I really can't get into there's there's an Irish series that I just can't. It for me, it really. I've mentioned this phrase before, but it's true. It really messes with my suspension of belief. Mm-hmm. So I want to be totally transported. I want to be engulfed. I want to be in this world. And I think it's problematic for me when they have something, you know, a modern soundtrack because it in, in, automatically it's pulling me back into the present. Right. Right. You know, I, and I, I, that's less enjoyable. Much less enjoyable. Like I'm not saying I'd stop watching, but it, it would be a bummer. I'd be bummed out. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, I've seen shows and movies where it it has, it works and it's interesting, um, and, and it's done intentionally. So there's you know the juxtaposition. It it does create a certain response that is unique in and of itself. You know, having an electric guitar when you're uh, in a historical drama or a period piece, it it can work. Um, and actually, it's so like one example is uh, there's a great show called. Peaky Blinders, which is set. See, that's after the show I was thinking of that I didn't enjoy it in. So, oh, we, okay. we, so that is the exact show that I thought, you know what, I couldn't get into it. And one of the reasons was the soundtrack. Actually, I would say the primary reason. 
So actually, I, you know, the first episode, I was like, what is this? I, I didn't like it at all. The first episode, I had a very visceral negative response to it as well. Like you did. I stuck with it because the, the actors were good. I was, and, um, I do love the actors. and I got drawn in. So like by the second episode, I was able to not get distracted in a negative way by the music. And then by like the fourth or fifth episode, when I was totally into the show, um, the music had become just a part of the aesthetic and then it worked for me. So like I, you know, once I, I sort of had to get over that hump and then I was able to enjoy the music. It was actually not, it was not a negative. It was kind of a positive, it was just part of the the whole feel of the show, but it is a rare show that can pull that off. And even in that show, which I think did a decent job of it, um, it barely got me, it, you know, I, I, it almost you lost me kind of, up front yeah, and it lost jarring. you. It so, lost me completely. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So I'm with you. I don't think it. I don't think it would work here with Lord of the Rings, especially because no. y- you really have to be in this world, and the music is a part of that world, and you can't Absolutely. you can't put Radiohead, um, you know, over a scene with Elrond. You know, that's not going to work. As much as I love Radiohead, which I do, actually, <laughs> you're like now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> well, the guys from Radiohead, they have done soundtracks and they have done some interesting work. They could actually maybe make do something that worked. I wouldn't put it past them. Those guys are geniuses, but you, you get, get my Sigur point. Ross. Get Seeger Ross. They would do great. Oh, yeah. I, there you go. Icelandic band. They'd be fantastic. But Michael, I want to ask you the same question. Top two things. And just to be fair, you can say three things if you like. Well, okay. So number one for me, and I want to be, I want to be fair here, but my number one is I want to see something other than Peter Jackson, something other than Peter Jackson's take on Lord of the Rings and on Tolkien. Now, I love Peter Jackson. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I love what he did with Lord of the Rings. I mean, it is it was a, those were beautiful movies and beautiful adaptation, and I love what he did. And so I'm not saying I want to see something other than Peter Jackson because I find fault with what he did. I want to see something other than Peter Jackson because it is time for a different interpretation. His adaptation of Tolkien's work has dominated our culture for a decade, two decades. Um, his is the only version we've seen and, and the only version an entire generation has seen. A whole generation of Tolkien fans has grown up only knowing the version that Peter Jackson gave them. And while it is a beautiful version, um, Tolkien's world is a big one and there's room enough for everyone to play, room enough for other versions. And I am excited and hopeful that we will see a different take. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be totally different. I mean, it still has to adhere to, uh, it has to, to fit with what Tolkien wrote. So there's still going to be some similarities, but I want to see a different sensibility when it comes to lighting, um, with respect to editing, with respect to, to tone, um, different, you know, tweaks on how you present the genre. I want to see just a different, unique individual take something other than Peter Jackson, you know, it makes me think of when the Hobbit was first released and it was, or first announced. And initially it was going to be Guillermo del Toro who was going to direct and create those movies. I was really excited because I I loved. He's one of my favorites. He's, he's a brilliant visionary uh, filmmaker and he had recently done Pan's Labyrinth, which is this great fantasy film. So good. And I thought, wow, he's, he has a totally different approach to fantasy world building. He uses a lot more puppets. So visually it's going to be very different. Um, It's going to be very different, but 
very awesome. And so I was super excited for that. And, you know, we could talk about this at some, some other time, but for whatever reason, he pulled out of the project and Peter Jackson had to swoop back in and finish those movies. And so we got another Peter Jackson interpretation. Um, and you know, that didn't turn out so well, but, um, you know, I, I, I am excited for another take. Now, I don't know what these showrunners, what their style is. They don't really have a body of work for us to reference that gives us a good idea of what their style is. But I, we're going to get something different. At least I have my fingers crossed. Yeah, I, I do think it's also time for a different aesthetic, a different feel. And um, yeah, maybe possibly more fantastical. We'll see. I, I, I think that is really exciting, too. I mean, we all have read these books and have totally different. We have different visions in our head each time. So yeah, I'm excited for that. And we know that they have a really great artistic director. And so I I think we're in good hands, you know, visually speaking, um, and otherwise. And a sub sub question for you. I mean, I think that the subject matter of the second age, or at least some of it is much darker in tone, or at least it invites a much darker style of storytelling than Lord of the Rings. I mean, the tale of Numenor is essentially a tale of the tragic downfall of Numenorean men who were once heroic um, allies of the elves and then become totally corrupted and they all die basically, except for a small, small group. Um, That's a really different style of, of, of tale. Yeah. I mean, we still get the classic Tolkien, which is that people, the faithful escape and go on and found and become super, their line is so important in mm-hmm. Middle Earth from there on. So we still have the classic you catastrophe or, you know, the the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But yeah, it is a tragedy. I would categorize it as a tragedy, which for Tolkien is, it's pretty rare. I mean, it's, it's uh, Lord of the Rings, I certainly wouldn't categorize as a tragedy by any stretch. So yeah, it could, it, it, it could be much darker in timbre and perhaps intended for a more adult audience, hence the intimacy coordinator, which we <laughs> mentioned last time. Um, but yeah, you, you make a oh, really good, I just had, I just had an idea. I just had an idea. The intimacy coordinator, it's because they're filming the ants reuniting with the ant wives. That's oh, why they, <laughs> goes down. Oh gosh, I did not need that visual. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I mean, that's I I do hope that we get sort of like you mentioned earlier, the Shakespearean tragedy. I think that would be really um, that would be an interesting take. And we know I mean, he was a middle uh, a Middle Ages scholar of the Middle Ages. That's what he studied. He studied a lot of Mm Anglo-Saxon literature. He studied Mm a lot of literature from that time period. So that would, it, it does make sense that it comes through in certain of his writings. I mean, we, we see that for sure in the, the tale of the children of Hurin. If you, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that tale, I would recommend reading that, but that is one of the other, I would categorize that also as a tragedy and yeah. quite Shakespearean. I'd compare it to like Oedipus Rex. In fact, is like a good literary reference. Right. Yeah. There's so much darker elements. I mean, you know, as I already mentioned, Tar Muriel, uh, Ferrazon takes her to wife by force. I mean, that's that's a reference to rape, and there's no real way around it. Um, and you know, so I don't think the the show can circumvent that plot point. Um, Sauron and his corruption of the men of Numenor. There's slavery. There's human sacrifice. I mean, you know, there's there's basically dark. a yeah. cult of Morgoth, and that's you know, there's some so there's some ugly stuff, and it's going to require a different take, which I think 
people, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings fans know what the second age is about, but I don't think people are really ready for the, to see that tale depicted, um, in a, as dark a way as it probably will be. So I bet you there will be some blowback, but I'm still excited to see that, that story. Um, so my number two, number two. My, my number two is, um, I want to see, and it's sad because now that we've got the, um, the plot synopsis, the official plot synopsis has been released. We know we're not going to get this, but I want to see a narrow story, uh, that does not span the entirety of the second age. I want to see five or six seasons that delve into a few years and a really important story in a few years. Uh, now that we've seen the plot synopsis, I think we know we're not going to see that because it says that we start in a time of relative peace, which is, you know, before the forging of the rings, probably about 500 to 500 in the second age. We know we're going to see the forging of the rings. And then we know that it goes all the way to the fall of Numenor in the year, you know, after the year 3000. So we know we're probably getting at least 25 Hundred three thousand years of story, oh um, so that's well, think, really what I, I was hoping right. we wouldn't get. Right, I think you're right to want to really focus narrative. Like if it's too spor- sporadic and disconnected and frenetic, I think w- that's definitely just not good storytelling. Mm-hmm. So it's a they're they're walking on a fine line here, and I think I'm I'm glad they have so much help um, with. You know, they have a lot of writers and executive producers in that room Mm -hmm. who have created successful franchises before and who really know how to do this. So I, I do hope that I hope for the same thing. I hope that it's, it's focused and we can really uh, invest in that story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I have two, there's really two reasons why I want that to happen. One, it'll just make for a better story. If you try and tell a story that spans 3000 years with characters, I mean, a lot of your human characters are going to die really quickly. Maybe you can, in each season, tell one part of the story, you know, that spans a, a couple of years. And then in the next season, jump to another story. Maybe you can handle it that way. But it, it, just logistically, it's almost going to be impossible to tell a, a focused, character-driven, slow burn type of story if you're trying to span 3,000 years. You just can't do it. So I, I really had hoped that they would focus on a smaller storyline. Um, but the second reason was because if, if you don't tell the entire Second Age story in this series, it means that we could have more series from Amazon. I mean, Amazon bought the rights. If they focus this series on one, uh, you know, maybe just the fall of Numenor. If you told if in those six seasons, you spanned a few generations of men and just told the story of the fall of Numenor, that would be that would be a huge show on its own. And it would be a great show, but you would still have all this other second age material you could do another spin-off series you could do a separate a separate series about the rings of power you could do a separate series about the last alliance that's um, so true and you know we may get that we may just see these other places peripherally like linden and mm-hmm. you know they mentioned the misty mountains those may be present but really not the focus like we may still right. get exactly what you're talking about which is numenor you know and the men rising to power on this island getting too greedy attacking the the gods and getting sunk in the sea. That may be the primary focus. We're not really sure. I mean, look what Disney did with uh, the Mandalorian. Mm. You know, they they created an entire show around a character that did not exist in the major Star Wars films. I mean, he was um, a Mandalorian similar to Boba Fett. So he he was of that sort of race of people um, or that clan of people. But that character is not a character we'd seen anywhere. They just create him out of thin air. Um, and he goes on adventures 
that don't really have anything to do with the core Skywalker storyline. And, but it's, you know, I, I don't necessarily love the show, but it is a good way to explore this broader world. Um, right. You know, they while, have so much room to play. There's yeah. so much room, creative license. And I hope that, you know, I hope they can use it tastefully. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm very, very concerned that we're not going to get that nice slow burn story, but um, you know, hopefully they, they do a good job of it. We do have writers from better call Saul and, Breaking Bad in there. Those are two of my favorite shows, my two favorite slow burn shows, great writing. So hopefully they're able to keep that writing room in check and and get some really good nuanced character driven focused storylines. So that's, that's what I'm hoping for. I got my fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right, folks. Well, I think we are nearing the end of our time. Join us next week where Jen and I will be talking about The Hobbit. Uh, not the Peter Jackson adaptation, but the 1977 animated version of The Hobbit. Now, Jen and I, have been, we've been reading The Hobbit furiously to, to to reread it, and we're excited to watch this old adaptation. And we're going to talk through it, talk about the choices that were made, um, talk about the the funny animation and the goofy looking hobbits. I cannot wait for psychedelic colors and <laughs> really creepy Gollum. Those are that's the that's all I remember about it from childhood, seeing it in childhood. So it's going to be a bit of a trip. Literally. Just think about uh, it. I, I have actually dreamt of <laughs> that animated Gollum since. Scary. I know this is coming up and it freaked me out. That that was. Oh, it scared the crap out of me as a child. <laughs> I was way too young to be watching this. Yeah. I mean, a- Andy Serkis is the, is the number one. He's the epitome of Gollum, but uh, still in my mind, in the depths of my soul, this animated Gollum is the one that, that scares me at night. It's going to be fun to watch. We're going to we're going to watch it. We're going to talk about it. Uh, please do join us. It's going to be a blast. And this is really getting getting into what this podcast is all about. We're going to watch all of Tolkien's works. We're going to talk about them in anticipation of this new series where we will be watching it and talking about it all the way through with you guys. So farewell and may the wind beneath your wings bear you to where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Jen, you ready for some uh, Grey Havens action? Let's do it. What do you have for me today, Michael? Okay, I got I got a real golden nugget here for you. Bring it so, on. So, sp- speaking of adaptations, the greatest adaptation that the world never saw would have been starring the Beatles and directed by the great Stanley Kubrick. This <laughs> this is an adaptation <laughs> that actually almost happened. There. The, I, you know, Google this, read some articles, uh, dear listeners, because these are this is an awesome story. And I'll just give you the broad strokes. So the Beatles grew up in the 50s, and that was around the time when Lord of the Rings was released. And so they grew up on Lord of the Rings. They were huge Lord of the Rings fans. They had read Tolkien. And when they had made it big, uh, they never forgot their love of Tolkien. Now, in, in 1963, I think, the Beatles had a three-movie deal offered to them by United Artists Production Company. And uh, this was not uncommon at the time. Um, there were, uh, I think, The Who had a movie that featured their music. Um, uh, there, there were a few others. So the Beatles had one of these deals, and they actually released two films that were more on the comedic side. One was called A Hard Day's Night, which was a mockumentary where the band members play themselves. And that was actually a big success. 
And uh, the second movie was called Help, and it's a James Bond parody where the the Beatles fight an like evil Beatles, I feel like the Beatles were just very high and like let's make let's make a movie where we fight a bad guy and we're playing ourselves but we're not ourselves something like that what what, what do you mean we're ourselves we're in a movie how how do we play ourselves but it's like a mockumentary it's like reality but not <laughs> I, I feel cheated and robbed is the bottom line that this movie never got made. Well, that so, Beatles, first, it should have happened. We, we have got, Jen, we have got to go back and watch those other Beatles movies. One, because they sound amazing. amazing. But the third, you know, the, the finale of this trio of movies was uh, the Beatles were hoping going to be an adaptation of uh, the Lord of the Rings. They wanted to adapt, you know, the entire Lord of the Rings into, into one movie. <laughs> and it was going to... It was going to feature their own music, all their own music, which, you know, not – we talked about modern music not fitting an adaptation, but we were going to get Beatles music. And Stanley Kubrick was more up and coming at that time. He was known. He was a good – you know, he had directed Spartacus, um, but, you know, he hadn't quite done uh, Eyes Wide Shut or The Shining. He wasn't – hadn't done those yet. Um, but so the Beatles actually – tracked down Stanley Kubrick and said, will you make this movie? Now, part of the reason it never got made is because I, <laughs> I, I, it surprises me, but he said, no, he, he's like, this is too big a task. Even for me, you know, <laughs> this is the guy who did 2001, a space odyssey featuring a 15 minute movie with one tone, uh, with a cube where el- monkeys attacked it. Like, <laughs> He made that movie, but he didn't make Lord of the Rings. Come on, Stan. Missed opportunity. Huge missed opportunity. But he just thought there's no way to adapt this story. The technology isn't there. And he's probably right. I mean, it was a tall enough order when Peter Jackson was doing it. Right. You know, I I, I don't want to know what the, you know, the makeup would have looked like in in the (laughs) 70s when this movie was getting made. But the best part of this, perhaps, is the casting. So, you know, of course the Beatles cast themselves. They decided who they wanted to play. And Paul McCartney was going to be Frodo Baggins. Ringo Starr would be his loving sidekick, Sam Gamgee. Of course. George Harrison would be Gandalf. (laughs) And John Lennon would be Gollum. I mean. (laughs) Yes. I love picturing John Lennon as Gollum. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I have two conflicting voices in my head. One is Gollum singing "Imagine," and the other is John <laughs> Lennon just doing John Lennon. Like we want it, we needs it. We must have the precious. They stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbits, <laughs> wicked tricksy false hobbits. You know, that's like amazing. in his really casual John Lennon way. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, just, that, you you got to give me Gollum singing "Imagine," though. You got to give me that one. <laughs> okay, hold on. I'm not warmed up to this. <laughs> I can't look at your face. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> the people living for today, Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> That was real funny. 
this nobody's is... looking now. Everyone left. We just lost the last three people who'd been that's hanging so, on. That's so good. That's 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 how we're introducing every single episode from now on. By the way, didn't Tolkien say no? He said no to so. That's the real deal killer. He's, you know, he he did not like, he said no, unequivocally no, when the Beatles asked for the rights. Um, and part of the reason was he literally did not like the Beatles, or at least didn't like their music. Uh, one, of, one of his letters. <laughs> in history is not liking the Beatles. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. How can you like music but not like the Beatles? That's, you know, hey, you can't get it right every time. I'll forgive Tolkien for that one. But the there is a story. So we know he didn't like the Beatles music because one of his letters, he complained about, uh, he had moved into a house on a nice quiet street. He wanted a nice quiet street for his uh, wife who was sick at the time to, to rest up and, and get better. And a few houses down, there were some loud, you know, ruffian teenagers who had a practice, who were practicing their rock band music in the garage uh, they would open the garage and they would practice in the garage and he hated it. He complained about it in this letter. And in that letter, he said, um, you know, sounds like they're trying to be the Beatles or something like that. And so he did not like the Beatles music. Um, he really didn't like the idea of John Lennon screwing up his golem. And uh, he said, no. <laughs> so funny. Well, I mean, at least we got, at least one good adaptation, which we will be covering next week. Thank you so much for that nugget, Michael. That was delightful. And thank you to our listeners for sticking with us uh, in the Grey Havens portion of our show. All right, we'll see you next time. <laughs>